Morning, everybody. Thank you for that, guys. Thank you, Mark. Thank you, Doug. I, uh, man, Mark didn't mention this part, but I, I do think part of the call of God that he sensed on his life coming here is the fact that he and I are kind of hair twins. You know, that's, that stuck out to me immediately. This is like, this is going to work. This is going to work. So, um, no, perhaps, perhaps not so much that, but uh, there's, a, there's a deep kinship that we're really stoked on. Um, hey, uh, one other thing as we, uh, we get into the teaching this morning. Uh, this was in the email this week, but I wanted to mention uh, our nominating team is meeting and prayerfully considering uh, bringing on another person onto our vision team this coming year. And you are a part of that. Uh, as you are experiencing gifts of wisdom and leadership in others in this church, uh, we want to hear that. Uh, we want to hear who people are that you think might be a good addition to the vision team. So you can email me with that. Uh, my email is on the bulletin, or if you go into the church email from this past week, you could also email Debbie. Uh, her email is in there as well. Uh, but we would love to hear that from you as we, we pray and discern. Uh, hey, so today, uh, today is, is one of my favorite days in the church calendar. So uh, today is the day each year that we observe what's called All Saints Day, or as others here have kind of affectionately referred to it as times, Old Dead Guys Day. Uh, reason for this, uh, normally, if, if you've been here much, uh, you know this, but normally the way we do our teaching is we come to the scriptures, we work through a text together, and we ask the question, how I might we apply this to our lives? Uh, on All Saints Day, we, we kind of do this backwards. We start with a person. We start with somebody from what Hebrews 12 calls the great cloud of witnesses, and we ask, how can this person's life instruct us in how to live the Christian life better? How does their life serve as an illustration to the scriptures? So we kind of do it in reverse. We kind of go backwards, in a sense, and... Um, I love, I love biographies for this reason. I enjoy reading church history. I'm very nerdy. Uh, I enjoy biographies. It's, it gives you this concrete example of, of how did somebody live out following Jesus really well, and what can we learn from that? And so these days give us a chance to sort of do that together. And importantly, as we do this, this is something that the Bible actually instructs us to do. So a couple examples here, but 1 Corinthians 11.1. Paul writes, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. His his example, his life, is meant to be a teaching tool. Similarly, Philippians 3 says this. says, join together in following my example, brothers and sisters. And just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. Then you jump down to verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 9. He says, whatever you've learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. Uh, one more, this is Hebrews 13, 8. It says, remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. In other words, One of the things that the scriptures teach us about how we can go about learning to live a Jesus-centered life is by looking at other people. We need models. 
We need examples. We need to be able to see concretely what does it look like for people to live in the way of Jesus and how can we learn from that. So, uh, so we do this once a year on All Saints Day and, and I love it. Some previous luminaries that we've, we've covered on these days, and if you've been around a while, you might remember a couple of these, but we talked about C.S. Lewis, of course, right? Uh, we did, did a, a year where we looked at C.S. Lewis and the life of the mind. William Wilberforce was uh, another year, kind of the quintessential activist, brought into slavery in the UK and then by extension through really most of the Western world. Uh, Brother Lawrence, the contemplative life. Martin Luther, the great reformer. Mother Teresa, uh, in, in the work of compassion. Um, one we did one year, a person who is, is not dead, and I'm thankful for that, but Bono. We did uh, the activist artist. That was a super fun one. Enjoyed that so much. I'm a huge U2 fan. Uh, Arthur Guinness, the great humanitarian and maker of great beer. We did uh, a year on his life as well. And um, I shout out to Andy McCarg, who every St. Patrick's Day listens to that particular episode, and then they have their festivities and corned beef and whatnot. So anyway, we've, we, do, we do all these things. Um, most of these are figures that are, are long dead. But this year, I wanted to look at someone who just very recently passed away, uh, a gentleman named Tim Keller. Uh, he died just a few months ago at age 72 of pancreatic cancer. Is anybody familiar with Tim Keller? Have you seen, heard, read? A lot of you are. A lot of you are. He was a, a, really, I'd say, a very important figure in contemporary Christianity. And uh, whether you're familiar with him or not, Tim Keller was pastor of a church called Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City. It's a church that he planted in 1989, pastored that church for 30 years, in addition, uh, Keller is the author of uh, numerous books. I can't believe how many books he's written, uh, including two that are New York Times bestsellers. Uh, in your bulletin, there's a list. If you want to start down that path of reading some Keller, I put a few favorites there. And actually, I brought a few. I like fished through, and turns out I had a few extra copies of Keller books lying here and there. So there's several up here. If you want to come and snake one after service, you can do that. <laughs> So, uh, so that's, that's a thing well worth reading. Um, part of the story with, with Keller, and, and we'll unpack this a bit more, but part of what I, I suppose you need to know is up until not that long ago, Keller was an unknown figure. Uh, he planted this church in New York City in 1989. It was kind of a, a very average, kind of typical-sized church until after 9-11. And, and after 9-11, a lot of the just the good work that they had done pastoring in that community kind of came to fruition, and they, they became a place that a lot of folks turned to in the aftermath of that. And uh, the church grew quite a bit after that, and New York City being a place that is connected to everywhere else, uh, people started downloading all these Tim Keller sermons. He became the most downloaded pastor in America over the course of just a few short years. Uh, and that's, that's kind of how he became so influential and uh, his church grew and all this. But it's, it's interesting. Church planners in particular would visit Redeemer in New York City because they want to know, like, what's the secret, right? What's the secret sauce this way? How can I have a church like Tim Keller has? And uh, the phrase that you would so often hear from people who would visit that church is, I don't get it. 
Like, I don't understand what's happening here, why, why they are experiencing all this ministry in particular. Well, one friend of mine who, who visited uh, Keller's church some years back described it this way to me. He said, okay, the first thing was like figuring out where to go. Right? At the time, they had three campuses meeting around different parts of Manhattan at, at you know, different times on Sunday morning. And they didn't publish anywhere where Tim Keller was going to be. Right? He was going to be at one of the three, but you only had a 33% chance of seeing Tim Keller if you went there on a Sunday morning. Because they didn't publish it, deliberately. They didn't want it, and he didn't want it, to be about him. Now, my, uh, my friend guessed right that day, and he ended up at the church where Tim Keller was, and he was so stoked. So he's at that campus, and uh, he said everything about the church experience was, I mean, it was good, but it was kind of unremarkable. And then Tim Keller, he comes out to teach, and there's no fanfare, like there's no introduction, there's no, this is Tim Keller, you know, nothing. He just comes out, and he's, I think at the time he was in his late 50s, and he's bald and soft-spoken and like has a tie and jacket and looks like a professor, Right, which he was for a brief time, looks like a professor, and then he opens his mouth and he, he preaches like a professor. There's no flashiness, there's no fanfare, there's, there's really, really nothing that you would expect in this church that is, is growing the way that this church is growing. Right? So no, no special lighting, there's no fog machine, there's no skinny jeans, there's none of the things... That, uh, that a lot of us have become accustomed to seeing when we ask the question, wow, why is that church growing the way that it's growing? An utter lack of pretense, uh, an utter lack of gimmicks in any way. But here's the thing. Uh, Keller, he, he was able to draw this wonderful connection between the scriptures, of which he was a tremendous student, and the human heart, of which he was a tremendous student, and the culture in which that church existed, of which he was a tremendous student. And the result of that has been really interesting. So many of these very flashy churches have gotten very big and then gone away overnight or left very little impact over time. And Keller's story is the opposite story, where the the fruit of their church has resulted in hundreds of other churches planted and movements in other countries being started, and a tremendous personal influence for Keller. And you ask, why is this? How is it that they were able to have a ministry of such true depth for so long? And, uh, uh, and that, I would suggest, makes Keller a very highly relevant figure for us. Uh, as the world in which we're living out the gospel continues to get more and more secular, how can we impact the world in ways that are real and deep and make disciples whose roots go deep, who don't wash away with the next trend or uh, as they chase after the next fad. But how do we be people who are vitally connected to Jesus and able to impact the world God has put us in in ways that are meaningful? So this morning, to that end, we're going to look at four lessons that we might learn uh, from Keller's life. And let's, uh, let's pray as we do this, and we'll look into the scriptures and into his example. Heavenly Father, uh, we confess that we are, 
We are people who are prone to shortcuts, prone to taking the easiest path to whatever place we're trying to get. And God, we acknowledge that's not always what you want us to do. Lord, we want to be people who grow deep in you. We want to be people who are deeply connected to Jesus. We want to have a tremendous impact on the world around us, not just in the moment, but God, one that will echo into eternity. We pray that you would be doing that work in us here, that in the hopefully humble and faithful ways that we attempt to follow you, that you would be bringing good fruit as a result of that. And God, as we come to the scriptures and as we look at the life of our brother, Tim Keller, we pray that you would be our teacher this morning, uh, that you might challenge us in specific ways, how we might live these things out as individuals and how we might live them out collectively as a church body. And God, this morning too, we continue to look to you and pray for peace. And God, just your grace, your mercy upon the Middle East. And Lord, your word says that there will come a day when we don't need the weapons of war anymore, when we'll pound them into farming tools. And God, we pray that you would hasten that day. Would you just bring relief on the suffering, the bloodshed that's happening in that part of the world right now? We look to you for that as well. We thank you, God, in Christ's name. Amen. All right, friends. So four lessons from Keller's life, how he lived out his pursuit of Jesus. The first one is this, and we'll call it faithful cultural engagement. Faithful cultural engagement. So as a pastor in New York City, in Manhattan in particular, uh, this is one of the most secular places in the U.S., It's a highly educated population, highly accomplished, highly driven population. One of the more difficult places in the country uh, to be uh, planting and then leading a church. It's a place where Christianity is is sort of sneered at. It's not taken very seriously. Uh, Of course, it's not the only place that's a cultural trend across the country, but these things tend to be amplified in a place like New York City. And the question that, that you have to ask as a church in light of that is, well, how do we respond to a culture that's dismissive and sometimes even hostile towards us as believers? What do we do with that? And there's, there's three common postures, and Keller talked about how these are postures we don't want to take. We want something different. And just to kind of take you through these quickly, the first response, the first Uh, the first response that we want to avoid is this. It's we don't withdraw from culture, right? That's that's one option. Call this the Amish option, if you will, right? Uh, They're kind of the ultimate example of this where it's like, hey, man, we're we're going horse and buggy. We're not going to engage at all with what's going on in the world around us. Uh, But, of course, if they're the ultimate example, we we have smaller examples of how we do this, right? We have ways of walling ourselves off, of taking a posture that's just super protective and says, okay, we're not going to engage. We are going to pull back. We're going to kind of circle the wagons around ourselves, protect our children from the things out there. We are going to, uh, uh, we're going to create our own little subculture here and just live within our bubble. Right? That's one response, and it's an understandable response. Uh, but Keller was one that was, was quick to say that's not the right response for us as Christians. 
because we follow a God who incarnated himself, who took on flesh and lived among us. And in following his example, we must do the same. We can't simply withdraw from the world. No, we don't want to take on its norms. No, we don't want, want to be infected by it in ways that are sinful. But we have to be those who remain engaged. So the, the Amish option, the withdraw from culture, not the right option. Uh, a second, uh, second very common response is to try to conquer culture. To conquer culture. So an example of this would be like the religious right. Or in more recent years, also the religious left has kind of gotten on the same bandwagon. But the idea here is that if we amass enough political or cultural power, then we can impose our Christian values on those around us, right? The key to engaging culture by this view is, is we just get stronger and bigger and more savvy, and then we can make the culture do what we want, whether the culture wants to do it or not. Right? So um, if, if you're doing this from the standpoint of the religious right, that might manifest in something like stricter abortion laws. If you're doing this from the perspective of the religious left, it might be something like an anti-racism curriculum in schools. But regardless, it's this idea that the key for us is to get powerful. And once we're powerful, we can make people do what we want. And Keller, among others, says no. That's not the proper Christian response for us as well. Yes, of course, we want to see laws in our country that make us more moral and laws that make us more just. But to use power to force behaviors on people that they don't really believe in is a short-lived strategy. Right? There's that, uh, that old saying, a person convinced against their will is of the same opinion still. Right? It's true. Uh, if if we are uh, imposing our values on others, it doesn't touch the heart, it doesn't change people's minds, so it's a short-lived approach. Uh, That's second, Uh, not conquering culture. Third uh, approach that we don't want to take is assimilating into the culture. Uh, This has been the the strategy in most, uh, what's sometimes known as mainline Protestant churches or theologically liberal churches and The idea here is that the way that we engage culture is we change or we conceal or we water down any beliefs or practices that the culture finds unsavory, right? If there's something about us, about Christians, about Jesus, about the church, about what Christians believe that the culture doesn't approve of, well, we just kind of scooch that to the side. And and Keller's response to this is this too is a short-lived strategy. It fails first because, one, when we do that, we're not actually being faithful to the teachings of Jesus. And what's what's the point of introducing people to a Jesus who we have modified to suit our modern tastes? We're not worshiping him any longer. We're just worshiping ourselves in a different form. But in addition to that, it also doesn't work. Uh, The track record of this over the last hundred years is is the period that we're looking at in particular, uh, has led to a a huge diminishment of churches who have taken this track. They don't work. They go away. These churches end up failing. So kind of two strikes against that one. So 
What, in Keller's view, does a biblically faithful cultural engagement look like? If it's not these things, if it isn't assimilation or conquering culture or withdrawing from culture, what does it look like? And the option that he practiced and contended for in his work with other pastors was faithful presence within the culture. Faithful presence within. We don't run away from what's going on around us. We seek to understand it. Uh, We don't pull back and pretend like Like, we can hide ourselves from what's happening in culture? No. Like Jesus, like the incarnation, uh, like the God who said, I will dwell among you, we we are among. We enter in, and we do so in a spirit of love and grace and understanding. Part of the, the genius of Keller, and you see this when you read his books, especially his books on apologetics, uh, he does such a marvelous job of understanding our culture's mindset. Uh, the, I mean, you just look at the footnotes in the back. They just go on and on and on. I'm like, oh my gosh, how much does this guy read? But just a deep understanding of this is what is animating our culture. How can I come inside of that and from within that worldview show how Christ is better? Faithful engagement with the culture. Uh, Paul writes something along these lines in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. He says, When I was with the Jews, I lived like a Jew to bring the Jews to Christ. When I am with the Gentiles who do not follow the Jewish law, I too live apart from that law so I can bring them to Christ. But I do not ignore the law of God. I obey the law of Christ. When I am with those who are weak, I share their weakness, for I want to bring the weak to Christ. Yes, I tried to find some common ground with everyone, doing everything I can to save some. Uh, You see what he's doing here? He says, I work hard to understand so well those that I am living and ministering to and with that there's common ground there. And I, I find those bridges and I cross them, bringing Christ to them. He says, I don't compromise my faith in this. He says, I still obey Christ in this. But I understand and I live in a way, I live engaged in a way that allows me to be a bridge, helping people who can't understand what Jesus is all about to come to find faith in Christ. Uh, friends, to do this, it, it requires first that we know God and we know his word. We have to know what that baseline is. Uh, But it also requires that we be a student of the people around us and of the culture in which we live. We have to understand, if we're going to be articulate ambassadors for Christ in the place in which he has put us, we've got to be engaged. We've got to be eyes open. What is going on around me? And how can I bring Christ into the midst of that? Uh, That's one. It's the way that Keller engages faithfully with culture. Uh, second, second characteristic I want to highlight here is graceful tolerance for those who differ. Even as Keller was engaged deeply with the culture around him, he was a model of grace for what it looked like to differ. This is from 1 Peter chapter 3. He says, In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do this with gentleness and respect. Uh, Gentleness and respect. 
Is it too much for me to say that that's often lacking in the way that the church engages the world around it? Gentleness and respect. And I think part of what set Keller apart in his field was how sincerely and how deeply he practiced this and how he, how he meant it. Uh, Keller, he was a tremendous apologist. Uh, uh, and by that I mean somebody who contends for the, the reasons behind biblical faith. Uh, probably the, the best one since C.S. Lewis, really. Uh, but he had a way of doing this, of contending for the gospel without being combative or arrogant or demeaning. Right? You, can, you can go on YouTube and you, you won't find a video that says anything like, watch Tim Keller own this atheist. You know, like, there's none of that. Uh, there's, it's just such a humble approach that he takes. He would, uh, one place you can see this, and this you can Google, um, but he would regularly do these Q&As uh, after his service on Sundays, um, or he did a lot of these at universities. He, he did these at uh, Columbia University and Oxford, all over the place, but just do these Q&As with skeptics. And when you listen to him do this, he'll, he'll be asked a question, and often it's kind of a combative question. Somebody's trying to provoke, uh, and he'll listen patiently, and then he'll reframe the question, state it in a way that, that both captures what that person means, but usually that makes it harder, right? If, if you kind of say, well, I reject God because God is, is like this, he'll say, well, actually, have you also considered this and this and this? Because that's an implication of what you're saying. He starts by making the question harder and really shows a lot of respect for the questioner in that. And then, kind of his next thing is, is really affirming where that person is coming from. And and getting to what's kind of the heart question behind that, right? And, and in a very sincere way, just recognizing that and saying, isn't this the reason that all of us should be caring about this? And then from there, he'd proceed to answer, right? And sometimes that answer was, I don't know, which I always appreciate, the honesty to say, I'm not sure, I need to learn more about that. But most often, he, most often he did know. Most often, the answer was some form of, I understand why this is important. This is the way our secular world would answer that, and let me show you why that will never bring us the satisfaction we're actually looking for. But the gospel, the cross of Christ, brings this. It's, it's a masterful exercise to look at, and I'm, I'm telling you all this, and you're like, well, where's the video? I, I actually I spent so much time this week being like, I'm, I'm going to bring some clips of video, but he doesn't do sound bites. And so, um, so I'm just going to have to tell you to Google him if you want to hear more. Even in terms of like, I, I told you he like preaches like a professor and he's not flashy and all this. I was like, oh, I'll just bring in a little clip of this or that. I couldn't get anything. Like nothing that's sound bite worthy. Anyway, um, one of the things that Keller said that I appreciate, he says, tolerance isn't about not having beliefs. It's about how your beliefs lead you to treat people who disagree with you. Graceful tolerance for those who differ. And if you read his books too, this quality is in his books. Um, you know, I, I know both, both Simon and Ryan Grassy, two, two gentlemen we've baptized here. Uh, Keller's writing was a big part of them coming to faith and just this gracious approach that he has. Um, I, I think we've lost this. Our... our our most dominant, it seems, cultural response 
as goes more like if, if I disagree with you, it probably means not only that you're wrong, but that you're evil. And uh, we sometimes take it the next step and say, well, and because that's the case, then I have every right to personally destroy you. Right? And I, I wonder if in the midst of a culture, both left and right, we do this to each other. If in the midst of a culture like that, if we might be that much more distinct as salt and light in the world, if we as Christians commit ourselves to practicing true tolerance with those who differ, a graceful tolerance for those who are in a different place than we are. It's important to note here too, Keller did not expect to be tolerated in return, uh, did not expect to be welcomed into the halls of power and I mean, that's New York City in a nutshell. It's a hub for, uh, for news media, for academia. A lot of congressional action comes out of there. Uh, so it didn't bother him when his tolerance was not returned by others. But it, it's interesting, over time, uh, his steadiness in the midst of hostility kind of made him the go-to guy, right? At, at least when it, it seems so often when you turn on the news, they're, they're looking for a bomb thrower because they want a reaction and they want clicks and all this. But when they weren't looking for a bomb thrower, when they're looking for a Christian to actually get an actual answer from, it was Keller. And so he'd find himself in the New York Times and find himself on CNN and all these places, um, not because he sought it, but because of this tolerance that he so often exhibited. Uh, this is from 1 Corinthians chapter 1. It says, Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Right? Paul never expected to be tolerated by the society around him. He didn't expect to be embraced. So there's going to be some who are, are looking for power, and the cross is going to disappoint them because we offer them a God who is crucified in a shameful way. And he says there's those who are looking for wisdom and we're going to disappoint them too because what sounds more foolish than this matter of, of following this crucified God? But Paul's undaunted. He says we don't change what we're doing because of that. We offer the cross of Christ. And to those who are being saved, it makes sense. Keller stands as an example of someone who stuck to that over 30 years of ministry. And the fruit of it is something that's pretty beautiful. Uh, one more example there is because it's a fun story, but uh, there's this, uh, this prestigious award in, in the, the land of Reformed theology called the, the Kuiper Award. And um, Keller was named the recipient of this just maybe three, four years ago. Uh, and Princeton University and Seminary was the one that was, was giving out the award. Princeton is one of those places where Keller went when, when he was younger, but they've, they're a place that has followed that path of assimilation and become very liberal and drifted far from scriptural teachings. And Anyway, when it was announced that Keller was the recipient of this award, there was sort of predictably this huge uprising that happened. There was a student protest and then it became kind of this, this national protest among those who follow such things. But, you know, kind of coast to coast, all of these, these people saying, well, we don't want to give this award to Keller because uh, we don't like some of the things that he represents. 
Ironically, the person that the award is named after also wouldn't qualify for it after all that either. But it's beside the point. So here's the deal. So they uninvite Keller because, you know, their donors are, are screaming. So they uninvite Keller from getting this award and giving this lecture. And, um, and interestingly, you know, this is that moment when I think for so many people, you, you know, you go on social media with that and it's a great time for you to raise money for your ministry or whatever else, right? Because the other side will rise up and be like, ah, cancel culture and, you know, we're so angry and all this. Here's what Keller does. Keller says, no problem. I, I don't need the award, but uh, have you booked another speaker for the night? And they say, no. He says, well, how would you feel about me coming and just giving the lecture? You don't have to honor me with anything. I'll just come and give the talk that I was planning to give. And they say, hmm, this might be an all right way for us to thread the needle and not upset everybody, right? Because, of course, there's those who are like, how dare you t- cancel Tim Keller, right? So, so they're like, hmm. So they invite him. And in this very hostile setting, he gives a, a brilliant and beautiful articulation of the gospel in the context of that setting. Deep tolerance, graceful tolerance for those who differ. Uh, another one, another thing that really, really sticks out in the ministry of Keller is that he had a unique ability to apply the Bible even-handedly. And I, I've heard him quote Martin Luther on this. And Martin Luther has this, this great illustration where he says, in our sin, we're kind of like a drunk man trying to get on a horse, right? And the image goes like this. A drunk man hops up onto the horse and, you know, they're so tipsy that they just go over the other side, tumble over, right? Then gets back on the horse and in trying not to fall off that same side again, they fall off the other, right? And Luther said, and Keller would quote him in this, Luther said, well, that's what we're like in our sin, right? We'll sin and then in our reaction to that, we just find another way to sin. We fall off the horse some other way. And, uh, and Keller reason that he would bring this up when he spoke to pastor groups is on any given issue, he'd say there's typically at least two ways that we can go wrong, usually more than that. But there's at least two ways to fall off the horse. He said, if we're going to be faithful as pastors and faithful as churches, then we need to be careful to make sure that we're talking about both ways and not just one or the other. So the way that Keller would usually frame this is on any given issue, um, there's, there's generally a liberal way to sin on that issue and there's a conservative way to sin on that issue. And especially in a place like New York, those are categories that they're thinking about all the time, right? Uh, my liberal or conservative, if you're in Manhattan, you're probably a liberal, but still, you're, you're thinking in those particular categories. And um, here's, here's the thing. This is a little glimpse into pastor land. This may or may not surprise you. I don't know. But people love it when, as a pastor, you criticize other people besides you. So, like, the, like the best thing you can do as a pastor to, to win the praise of those around you is just criti- criticize those who aren't in the room, right? Uh, and, and Keller would talk about this and be like, you know, when you do that, you aren't being faithful as a pastor. Our job is to help people grow in Christ-likeness, and it doesn't help them at all to talk about what's going on somewhere out there that other people are doing. And then Keller would go past that and say, you know, as a pastor, when you do that, you're also being really lazy. 
because there's a better way to go. If our job is to see Christ formed in us, then we have to talk about us and not just about other people. Right? You, maybe you remember in the Gospels when Jesus talks about, uh, he's talking to the Pharisees and he's saying, you know, it's your forefathers that killed the prophets. And, you know, you, you, look, you look at that and you read the Old Testament prophets. The people loved it when they talked about what was happening in other countries. But they, they would kill the prophets when you started talking about what was happening in Israel. So, all this to say, when we talk about, and we see this in Keller, when we talk about applying the Bible to where we're at, uh, Keller was a master at doing this in a way that was even-handed, talking about both ways that we could fall off the horse and, uh, and not just deflecting to those that, uh, that are elsewhere. Here's a quote, kind of puts this in perspective. Keller says, only if your God can outrage and challenge you will you know that you worship the real God and not a figment of your imagination. If your God never disagrees with you, you might just be worshiping an idealized version of yourself. We have to bring the scriptures to bear, not just on those folks out there, not just on Christians in this other place. We have to bring the gospel to bear right here, right now. And if we're going to do that well, it has to be done in a way that's even-handed. Uh, one more. And this was, uh, Keller was brilliant at stewarding his influence. And this is a lesson we would learn. What does it look like to steward one's influence? Uh, Keller was, is a very humble figure. Didn't chase a platform didn't chase fame. He wasn't on social media. It, it wasn't about building this thing for himself. And I, I mentioned uh, his church really only grew after 9-11. And it came as, you know, people are downloading sermons. He didn't even know how, you, how to do that, you know. But it's happening for him. He, um, he actually, he's, I have no idea how many copies of his books have been sold. It's a ginormous number. But he didn't even start writing until he was in his 50s, right? He did have a lot of offers previous to that, but he, he, didn't, even, he didn't even start that. And I, I appreciate this now. You know, I'm now 51, and I'm, I recognize I write things that are better now <laughs> than when I was 30. Um, but he, I mean, he saw this. He saw this so clearly, and um, it's kind of this, this anti-celebrity approach to being a pastor, uh, which also is sometimes lacking in our culture, sadly. But the, the question remains, though, what do you do when it happens anyway? What do you do when you're not about that and it happens? Does it happen for Keller? Well, his answer to that uh, was to, to do what he could, to use his platform, if you will, to influence the church in positive ways. He was deeply committed to the local church, both his own and the church uh, around the world. Uh, he writes this. He says, The glory of God is available to you in the church in a way it's not available to you anywhere else. There is no more important means of discipleship than deep involvement in the life of the church. And this is, this is a countercultural statement in a time when many Christians think of participation in a church as optional. Right? And it's not from a biblical perspective. It's, it's not optional at all. Uh, but Keller was passionate about this and used his platform to build up churches and particularly to build up pastors. So 
Um, in that vein of being even-handed, uh, one way that, that I always appreciated this, you would use this platform to challenge pastors where they were lacking. So if he was speaking to a group of more conservative Christians whose faith maybe neglected concern for the poor or racial justice, he would speak to that. He would challenge that, again, in a very gracious way. But he would show them how scripturally, if they were to be people who believe in the authority of God's word, they have to be about racial justice. They have to be about care for the poor. They have to be about care for the immigrant. And, uh, and would do this in a way where, you know, as conservatives in particular, they're committed to the authority of the word of God. So you'd use that to show them, hey, this is non-negotiable. You've got to do this. In fact, if you're looking for a place to start in Israel, one of my favorite books by Keller is called Generous Justice, How God's Grace Makes Us Just. And he's writing in particular towards those who are more conservative who might be resistant to this idea. Uh, on the other hand, you know, if, if he was invited to speak before a, a group of more liberal pastors, those who are more prone to assimilation into culture, then he would challenge them not to minimize uh, biblical views around sex and sexuality, around the unborn, around the idea of God's judgment, etc. Uh, and, um, and then he would just personally invest in a lot of, a lot of other leaders as well. It was, it was interesting. Uh, after his death, all these editorials were popping up everywhere from Christian leaders and authors I really enjoy, and all these people that I didn't realize had any connection to Tim Keller. But he was behind the scenes propping them up. And, you know, I, there's a, a woman I quote here on occasion, Tish Harrison Warren, who's a tremendous author, uh, and she, she got a column in the New York Times recently. She wrote about how, when that happened, how Keller reached out, to, uh, reached out to her directly and said, you know, you don't know me. My name's Tim Keller. And it's like, well, of course she knows you. You're Tim Keller, right? But just reaches out to her and says, hey, I, I just, I'm really happy for you. I've read some of your stuff. You're an excellent writer. And I just, I just wanted to encourage you and see if there's anything I can do to help you in this. And there's all these stories of Keller just, just kind of finding these folks and saying, okay, I'm just, I'm going to invest in you. I'm going to help you to live out your calling better. Uh, contrast that, friends, to the way that so many leaders use influence once they have it. Contrast it to how you and I so often use influence once we have it but to steward his influence for the betterment of the church as a hallmark of Keller's ministry. Well, hey, um, I want to I end here with a quote. It sums up so much of, of what Keller taught, and it sums up so much of our faith. It says, The gospel says that you are simultaneously more sinful and flawed than you ever dared believe, yet more loved and accepted than you ever dare hoped. Both these things are true. Most of the time we underestimate our sinfulness and just how much saving we need. Uh, but the truth is, God loves us more than we could ever imagine. Uh, and let's pray as we, uh, as we turn to response that we might be those who can embody this gospel truth.